This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Good evening, travelers. We've got a surprise for you tonight. We are leaving the campfire, but don't worry. Grassman will stay behind and stoke the logs till we get back. But we thought this was a perfect night for a time-traveling stagecoach ride. The leaves are falling, the temperature's dropping, the sun is setting earlier every day. I know that that puts me in a mood for a good ghost story. I'm your driver, Steve Yoder, and with us is your tour guide, my aunt, Paula Schleiss. Ah, there you are. I could barely see you guys through this misty fog. Shep, Tinker, good boys. Wait, you named our horses after your favorite horse thief? Of course, who else? After all, Shep Tinker was from Southern Ohio, and that's where we're headed. Okay, everybody, climb on in. It's a magical carriage, so there's plenty of room for everyone. Pull those lap blankets on, and for heaven's sakes, keep your arms inside the coach until we get to our destination. We don't want to lose you or any of your limbs as we speed towards southern Ohio and back through the decades to the 19th century. We're going to peek in on some real moments in history that might have been forgotten if it weren't for their supernatural endings. Okay, everybody, please exit the coach. We have arrived in Norwich, a village in Muskingum County. For those who don't know this part of Ohio, we're a couple of counties directly east of Columbus. It was here, nearly two centuries ago, that an antiquities researcher was on a road trip exploring southern Ohio's ancient burial mounds. His name was Christopher Columbus Baldwin, and he was a librarian with the American Antiquarian Society. The AAS was an organization that very early on wanted to capture the story of our young country's prehistoric past, and Baldwin was their single full-time employee. In 1835, they sent him off from their headquarters in Worcester, Massachusetts, to go investigate some sites on their bucket list. He had already been through Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Wheeling. His last mission before returning home was to learn as much as he could about the old Native American mounds which still populated the rolling landscape of southeastern Ohio. Baldwin kept a diary as he traveled the country for his work. The last entry in his journal was made on August the 20th, 1835. It read, starting by stage on the Cumberland Road for Zanesville. Sadly, Baldwin would never make it to Zanesville. 
The Cumberland Road that Baldwin referred to was the new National Road, the first highway built by the federal government. To expedite travel, stagecoach stops had been set up along key towns, like the one in Zanesville. But first, Baldwin needed to travel through the smaller crossroads of Norwich, where just outside of town, the National Road was famously treacherous. It combined a steep hill with a harrowing curve. The 35-year-old Baldwin was a passenger on the stagecoach, but whenever possible, he always preferred to sit outside the carriage. Unfortunately, on this day, that choice would prove fatal. As the vehicle attempted to navigate the tricky curve, it encountered a farmer who was driving his hogs down the street. The coach's horses saw the hogs and were spooked. They reared, flipping the vehicle on its side. Baldwin was crushed beneath it. Because it was costly and problematic to transport bodies in the early 19th century, Baldwin was laid to rest in the Norwich Presbyterian Cemetery. His diary was returned to the Society and later published. Today, an Ohio Historical Society marker near the site of the accident notes that Baldwin's death was Ohio's first recorded traffic fatality. But there's another reason his memory has not been forgotten. It started about five years later. History has lost the name of the village doctor back then, but he was understandably a busy man, tending to homesteaders and travelers for miles around. It was not uncommon for him to have to look in on patients at all hours, and on one particular night, he ventured out at close to midnight to see a sick resident who lived west of town. As he traveled by horse down a lonely lane that went past the Norwich Cemetery, he entered a dark hollow. That's when he heard the rustling sound. He figured it was some sort of animal and thought little of it until suddenly something large came rushing toward him from the far end of the hollow. The doctor reined his horse back and watched as the image became clearer and clearer. It was another horse, and riding it, the figure of a headless man. The doctor held still, too petrified to move, but his own horse had seen it too, and she was having none of it. She bolted back to town, the doctor holding on for dear life. The doctor told others about what he had seen. Most of them simply scoffed, unconvinced that a ghost haunted their community, but one skeptical yet curious townsman decided to go see for himself. The next night, as midnight approached, he took his own nag to the hollow and trotted past the cemetery. To his complete and utter horror, the headless rider appeared, running toward him. He turned without hesitation and spurred his horse back to town as fast as he could. The ghost continued to appear from time to time, revealing himself to others, and while nobody could be sure what specter it was that was pursuing them, the locals became convinced it was the spirit of Christopher Baldwin. 
since all that remained above the ghost's shoulders was his neck. The locals called him Stumpy, and the little valley that he haunted became Stumpy Hollow. Okay, everybody, pile back into the stagecoach. We've got a date with another ghost. Here we are, folks. Welcome to Ross County. This time, we're two counties directly south of Columbus and 11 miles south of Chillicothe. Watch the mud. Believe it or not, this was what passed for a road back in the early 1800s. In our time, this will become Route 23 in Franklin Township, a nicely paved highway that continues all the way down to Portsmouth. But in this era, you're standing on a wagon trail known as Yoakum's Trace. And look, right over there next to the road, see that cave? It has a fabled history and a legendary resident. In 1952, that cave is going to be obliterated. But for a full century, it will be memorialized as the home of a beloved local hermit named William Hewitt. Hewitt lived in that cave for many years until his death in 1834. He was a gladiator of a man. Six foot two, 200 pounds, brawny and strong as anything. Despite his rugged lifestyle, he lived to the age of 70. Now, Hewitt didn't talk to people very much. You know, one of the side effects of being a hermit. So, people like to come up with their own stories about his mysterious past. One tale passed down from generation to generation, was that Hewitt came from Virginia, where he'd married into a very respectable family. But one night, after catching his wife in bed with another man, he killed her paramour and fled into the woods. As a fugitive, he eventually made his way to Ohio. Perhaps the only local resident who spoke regularly to Hewitt said that wasn't true. James Emmett, who lived in the village of Waverly in neighboring Pike County, said Hewitt was from Virginia all right, but that he left because his family became divided over his late father's estate. Emmett wrote this of the hermit. He had satisfied himself that he was the only honest, unselfish man that he knew, and he had no intention of returning home. In 1790, when he was 26 years old, Hewitt reached the Scioto River and thought he had found paradise. Eventually, he settled beneath a great ledge of a rock that projected out 10 feet, forming a sort of one-sided room. It was right here, along Yoakum's Trace. He formed the rest of the walls with rock, built a fireplace with a chimney, and hewed a heavy oaken door using nothing but his tomahawk. He fed himself with game that he killed with his rifle and clothed himself in the pelts of the animals that he harvested. On occasion, he would travel to Chillicothe to trade skins or venison hams for ammunition. But rarely did he speak more words than was absolutely necessary. 
His friendship with James Emmett was a rare exception, and the two men spoke several times over the next nine years. In 1834, Hewitt was ailing. He traveled to Waverly and was given a meal by a charitable widow who realized he was suffering from pneumonia. She called for the town doctor, William Blackstone, who tended to him until he died. Hewitt was buried in the Waverly Cemetery. After his death, Hewitt's cave drew tourists to Ross County. His story was carved into an obelisk, and thousands of people drove down the pike over the years to inspect it and hear the legend. Even into the 20th century, when the cave still existed, people would pause to have their picture taken by the roadside attraction. But for many years, people wondered if Hewitt might himself still be hanging around. It was after his death that villagers started seeing a ghostly visage trudging along the old road near the cave, spooking horses and frightening carriage riders. Sometimes passers-by would be fooled into thinking the image was a person in need and they would stop to help, only to have the figure vanish before their eyes. Even way back then, people believed ghosts lingered because they had unfinished business. So the townspeople began to wonder if the ghost was Hewitt, what was keeping their hermit earthbound? The answer was revealed decades later. In 1852, after that Dr. William Blackstone was buried himself, a stonemason named Edward Vester was digging a cellar for an addition to the old doctor's house when he unearthed human bones, legs, feet, hips. Horrified at the discovery, he quickly returned the bones to the ground not far from where he'd found them. It would take another 30 years for Vester to dig up the bones a second time and finally share his discovery. The year was 1883, and word of his find was spread in the local newspaper. That's when Blackstone's nephew, a doctor himself living in Circleville, decided to clear up the mystery and explain what had happened. Turns out, his uncle had dug up the old hermit after his burial. He'd gone to the Waverly Cemetery on a rainy night when the soil gave in easily to his shovel. He pulled the corpse out, took it back home, carved it into pieces, boiled the flesh off, then mounted the skull, chest, ribs, and backbone onto a board for display. He buried Hewitt's lower half in his garden. When the nephew began studying medicine, Dr. Blackstone gave him the display board. After hearing this story, Hewitt's lower half was sent to the nephew in Circleville, and he matched it perfectly with the bones that he had inherited. For the first time in half a century, William Hewitt's skeleton was complete. No one knows where Hewitt's remains are now. There's no indication it was returned to that Waverly Cemetery lot. But maybe the hermit found peace after all, because it was said after the bones were reunited, there were no more reports of ghosts 
along State Route 23. With changes in the highway from time to time, the cave was gradually whittled away until eventually it was gone entirely. But the monument that once marked the site was preserved. It was moved to the Scioto Trail State Park. You can find it beside a log church at the campground. Okay, all aboard everybody, no time to waste. We're going to continue down Yoakum's Trace to Portsmouth. I'm almost certain somebody is there waiting for us. Hey, sleepyheads, I know the gentle rocking of the coach is making you a little too comfortable, but we've got a story here that should wake you right up. Step out here with me at Alexandria Point Park. Look there, right below us at the base of the cliff. That's the Scioto River flowing into the Ohio. Back in our time, this here is the city of Portsmouth. But here, now, 200 years earlier, it's the pioneer river town of Alexandria. This is sort of Ohio's version of Atlantis. The good people of Alexandria are going to get fed up with a constant flood risk and abandon this settlement. It will take another generation to make a go of it here. But somebody from Alexandria never left. Let's have a seat over here at the park bench and wait to see if she shows up. The locals call her the White Lady. The story of the White Lady is a sailor's tale. We don't know the year it happened, but Laura says it began with the crew of a paddlewheel boat called the Kanaw Gal. One night, the fog was so heavy, the rivermen were forced to dock their boat on the Kentucky side of the Ohio River, right there across from Alexandria. But they had no hope of rest. They were plagued all night by the distant sound of a woman across the river screaming. But with the fog blocking them in, there was nothing they could do. After the sun rose, a hunter along the Ohio shoreline came across a gruesome sight, the mangled and bloody body of a woman in a white dress. Other settlers identified her as Mary Fisk, though, to be honest, I could find no record of this early pioneer tragedy. Once free of the fog, the Kanaw gal's crew, who had been tortured all night by the shrill cries, made their way to the other side of the river and discovered the hunter, inconsolable over what he had found. The men helped him investigate further, and together they found Mary's cabin high up the hill at Alexandria Point. There was a single bloody handprint on the cabin's door, and when they pushed it open and walked inside, they found more blood on the floor and the walls. Mary lived there with her husband and six-year-old son. The husband was away on a hunting trip, and was expected to be gone for some time. But the son had stayed with Mary. Neighbors searched for the boy, but no trace of him was ever found. They buried Mary 
in an unmarked grave. For years afterward, passengers and crewmates of boats that floated down the Ohio River reported the sound of a woman screaming near the mouth of the Scioto. Sometimes the wailing would come from the perch at Alexandria Point and pour down the cliff like hot lava into their agonized ears. Some have said they've seen the lady in white, her mouth gaping open and her arms extended, pleading for help. And on occasion, an unwitting captain was known to send a rescue party to investigate the cries, only to find the abandoned shack where Mary once lived. Okay, back in the carriage, everybody. We've got one final stop to make. Here we go. Bet you haven't been here before. This little hamlet is called Maud's. We're 21 miles north of Cincinnati in Butler County's Westchester Township. In 2022, we'd be standing in a busy little suburb here. But now, in 1894, Mods is mostly known for being a stop on the Big Four Railroad. The reason I've brought you to 1895 is because the local newspapers are filled with quite a bit of excitement. Just last week, a farmhand named Jacob Hoover said he saw an old man with several Indians standing in a crop field, which of course made no sense because Indians haven't lived here for years. But there they were, talking and gesticulating like maybe they were in trouble. Curious, but also wanting to be helpful, Hoover started toward them. The old man turned as if he saw Hoover approaching and began walking in his direction. But suddenly, a streak of fire shot up into the air, and that's when Jacob realized the figures weren't men at all, at least not physically. They were ghosts. He turned and ran all the way home. He was so stricken by the experience that his family called a physician to come look in on him. After the story traveled by word of mouth, other area residents started visiting the site and reported seeing similar apparitions. That's when a local man named Washington Swanigan, an influential and well-respected elderly citizen, stepped forward to share his story. Swanigan said his father once owned the farm, which sat near a stream that he called Tecumseh Creek. He had purchased it from Jonathan Grimes, a preacher who lived with the once great and powerful Miamis. The Miamis were among the tribes defeated by General Anthony Wayne at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794. A detachment of warriors from the Tecumseh Creek settlement suffered heavy losses, with 250 of their braves killed in battle. Many of the dead were returned from the battle site in Maumee to their families here in Mauds. Now, under the leadership of Father Grimes, 
the surviving Miamis did well for many years to come. Grimes purchased for them 2,000 acres of land in the township, and they farmed in peace for years. But death comes to us all. When Father Grimes fell ill, medicine men from many tribes were summoned to care for him. On his deathbed, he was also visited by a white man, the father of Washington Swanigan. The man agreed to carry on Father Grimes' role with the natives, but he was also warned that a 200-acre patch of land had been serving as their burial ground. You must never put a plow inside the lines I have marked with stones, Father Grimes told Swanigan's father. The man promised, and Father Grimes died soon after. Long after all Native Americans were forced from Ohio, Swanigan's father remained. His children and his grandchildren played around the gravestones until 1851, when he died of cholera. In his lifetime, he made sure no stone was upturned on the sacred soil. And his son Washington kept that promise as long as he lived on the land, until 1880. By then, Washington Swanigan was an old man, too old to work his farm. He moved to a small home in Maud's and hired an agent to rent out the farm. For the first time, the old burying ground was plowed up. It seemed clear to Washington that the spirits people were seeing were Father Grimes and those Miami warriors who were now troubled over the desecration of their final resting place. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our little stagecoach tour. So many ghosts, so little time. Let's do this again next Halloween. Well, that's it for tonight, folks. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to OhioMysteries.com. There you'll find everything you are looking for. And we will see you here Wednesday and next Sunday for another Ohio Mystery. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.